0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times. When I was at university, I was taught that gender was a social construct. And it was a phrase I loved to bandy about liberally, to much eye-rolling from my dad. But... Is espousing a socially constructed view of gender really that useful for women who are trying to fight for equality? And how does it fit in with those who identify as transgender? To navigate this complex and sensitive subject, we have on our panel feminist activist and academic Finn Mackay, Labour MP Angela Eagle, and post-human philosopher Patricia McCormack. Rana Mitter hosts.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this slightly damp hay afternoon at How The Light Gets In to talk about the subject beyond men and women. And we have three very distinguished speakers who are going to be bringing that to us today. Uh, on my right-hand side here, we have Dr. Finn Mackay, uh, who is the founder of the London Feminist Network, but is now lecturer at the University of West of England and in sociology, and author most recently of a book called Radical Feminism, which she assures me is available at a very good value paperback, possibly even after this very, uh, very event. Uh, on my left is Angela Eagle, Member of Parliament, Labour Member of Parliament for Wallasey, uh, former Shadow First Secretary of State, and has been named by The Independent, uh, that fine publication now mostly online, of course, as one of the most inf- uh, 50 most influential LGBT people in the UK. And on the left-hand side just beyond, we are delighted to have with us Professor Patricia McCormack, who specialises in continental philosophy. She teaches at Anglia Ruskin University. She publishes and lectures on sexuality, queer theory, Feminism and Ethics, and her latest book is The Animal Catalyst. So, we have tremendous expertise in front of us, and we are going to discuss a whole variety of areas to do with the category of gender. Is it still useful? Where is it useful? How might we overcome it? To start us off, I'm going to turn to Finn Mackay, if I may, and ask Finn, gender is a term that clearly has had an awful lot of use, and it's also travelled a very long distance in terms of the way we think about it, but is it still useful, or are we, in a sense, outgrowing it?
3: Okay, well, thank you. Um, I think it's important, before we get into the debate here, to make a very clear distinction between the two terms gender and sex. So these two terms out there in the world are always conflated, um, often wrongly. So biological sex refers to physical, biological, bodily characteristics. It's a descriptive label um, that we put onto people's bodies, usually at birth, um, based on biological features. And currently we recognize female, male, and intersex as those labels. So gender, however, is not biological. Gender is the term used to refer to masculinity, femininity, androgynous, camp, unicorn, All whatever other sorts of ways people might want to define um, their expression and their style and their personal identity. It is deeply felt, it's a key part of most of our identities, and in that sense it is real, but it is not born, it is made. Gender is a social construct that changes over time and place and culture. Babies are not born macho or boyish or girlish. Babies are not born liking football or frocks. They are not born with a biological drive to sit with their legs apart versus crossed. They don't have a fancy for long hair and makeup in the womb. They are not born neurologically predisposed to pursuing either low-paid caring work or construction apprenticeships. What is considered appropriately masculine or feminine, clothing, jobs, hobbies, roles, changes in line with the socioeconomic and political climate. So while around the world, babies have been born with pretty similar bodies, pretty similar biological characteristics forever, the same cannot be said for gender. Gender fluxes and changes, so it cannot and should not be described as biological or natural or fixed or in the brain, or these other sort of essentialist claims that are sometimes made for gender. So coming back to the question then of the debate, I can see why it may seem and feel radical to use terms and claim identities such as gender fluid or non-binary, for example, But these labels can be counterproductive because they can end up strengthening the very institutions that they suggest that they wish to take apart. So the category of non-binary, for example, reinforces the binary in a sense because in order for there to be a non-binary, there has to be a binary in the first place. And I would suggest, actually, that gender comes naturally to no one. Everyone works hard at their gender. Most people are trying to be masculine or feminine and worry that they are not masculine or feminine enough. Look at the billions spent on gym membership, beauty products, cosmetic surgery by men and women, the numbers of young people, boys and girls, self-harming, extreme dieting from younger and younger ages, suffering eating disorders, taking illegal muscle-building steroids, or overtraining in the gym. These brutal statistics also illustrate that point. Gender is a profoundly political category, It is intended to distinguish within our system of sex rank. So the answer cannot be just to add more and more categories to the rainbow of gender. If anywhere along the spectrum, women are still being oppressed by men. Women being paid less because they have an F on their birth certificate. Men being refused parental leave because they have an M on theirs. Fetuses aborted because they are girls. Men getting away with rape. This system of sex rank has to end, and that can only be done through collective liberation movements. It cannot be done individually alone through personal expression, which calls only for recognition of increasingly, increasingly diverse personal identities.
2: So just to be clear on that last point, Finn, you are saying this struggle cannot be carried out simply through individual recognition of individual preference.
3: There's a lot of good things about the massive cultural shift we're seeing in the understanding of the fixity of sex, sexuality, gender and sex. That's a a really interesting and powerful and real shift. But we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, not to be overly biological about it. Um, We mustn't throw away collective liberation movements because sadly we still need them.
2: Thank you very much for that very clear point. You've given us plenty there that we're going to come back to in just a few minutes, but not before I've turned to Angela Eagle. Angela, gender, is it a category that you still find useful, productive, or fruitful, or do we need to move beyond it?
4: Well, I uh, I, I have to say I agree a lot with Finn's analysis there. I mean, there are issues about empowerment, about gender stereotypes, about the roles that historically have been allotted to men and women across the world, not only in our own society, uh, that we need to liberate ourselves from. I, for one, believe, for example, that the Enlightenment never included women. I think that uh, Mary Wollstonecraft used to write a little bit about that. And if we did refound and complete the Enlightenment by including women, then we would have a better society And, of course, that goes for all other marginalised voices as well because the more that we can hear and respond to people's life experiences and accommodate them in our political calculations, in our view of what a just society should be, the more likely we are to create a more humane and sustainable society. So the battle uh, that women have had over years to get reasonable recognition for their needs in in, in a society, to be liberated from the very rigid stereotypes that uh, have prevented women from achieving their full potential, the better our society will be. I became a feminist and one that fought for liberation when I was eight years old. Um, I remember it very well, the actual moment. I went along to play chess to the Form Beat Junior Chess Competition. And because I'd uh, discovered that I could play chess and my dad had carted me along uh, to this competition and me and my twin sister were the only girls there playing. And I sat down all thinking the world was fantastic and at my feet ready for me to go and explore. had no idea that there was a problem until I sat down opposite this little boy who looked at me in horror and said, this can't be right, girls don't play chess. And he actually... Started panicking and first of all, I thought what is he going on about and then I thought he's frightened of losing to a girl That is what's going on here. So obviously I beat him Um, (laughs) And I won the tournament. I realized there was an even bigger problem when I was awarded a Biggles book as the prize So it was then that I was told that girls brains were smaller than boys and therefore they couldn't play chess So then I thought, right, there's a battle to be had here, and that's when I joined in.
2: So it sounds, from what you're saying, Angela, as if gender, the construction of ideas, for instance, that women can't play chess, are still with us, still need to be battled against. We're not yet in a point where we can go beyond gender.
4: We are nowhere near at that. I would love us to be able to go beyond those kinds of gender stereotypes which turn into economic reality, it would be fantastic. I would put a big tick in that box that opened up when I first went to that chest ornament, but we are nowhere near. We are actually going backwards in a lot of places, uh, and in other areas of the world, virtually no progress has been made. So we've still got a huge issue of gender stereotyping, of teaching and socializing boys and girls to be how they are expected to be, boys tough, girls empathetic. It's oppressive to both sets of people and we need to get past it and accept people for what they are. There are uh, men who aren't macho, there are women who are more macho than most men. We just should accept them what they are and not try to divide them and tell them they've got to be there or there and there's something wrong with them if they don't feel that they fit into those categories.
2: Very clear. Thank you very much. And as I say, we will come back to many of the implications of, uh, of, those, of those points, but not before we've heard from Professor Patricia Cormack. Uh, Patricia, what is your take on whether we can move beyond gender or whether really it's still the set of categories and ideas that we have to engage with?
5: I think that the question of can we move beyond is who are you asking? Because I can. Can you? Can you? (laughs) I mean, that's the problem that gender and actually I would even take it a little bit further and say that what the Anthropocene understands as biological sex is a humanist Interpretation. Just to be
2: clear on that, Patricia, I think many people here would know, but anthropocene is a term used now by historians and social scientists to, ex- yes, to, to explain to
5: explain a, a literally a man-made world where even our understanding of what is non-human or non-man-made is always going to be accessed via human and p- particularly masculine modes of understanding and modes of signification. Which means that even when we talk about a differentiation between gender, which we can say is cultural and something that is biological we're still talking about the way that we as humans designate those categories and what that means is that are we as humans willing to give up the designation of certain kinds of bodies based on the ideological attachments that we impose upon them and that's really what we're talking about here we're talking about a form of biopolitical control where it's not so much are you a man or are you a woman, is what is the ideological value that I am attaching to that designation. I mean, I don't even think we live in a binary society because binaries are equals. We live in a society that's isomorphic, where there's a dominant and then there's a failure. So you've got men and failed men who are, you know, everyone else, basically. You've got white and everyone who's not quite white enough. You've got all of those kinds of false seductions into binaries that actually expose themselves as being very asymmetrical in their access to power and, most importantly, in their access to self-designation. So I I think that I agree with both speakers because the inclusion and the acknowledgement of the dissymmetry of access and power has to be attended to. It has to. It exists. It's real. It creates people's materiality. But what we're talking about here is that the way in which we demarcate the world, the way in which we cut up the world, signify the world, is what creates material reality. It is as real as whatever biology might mean to whomever. And that, yes, adding lots of different designations is great and wonderful and fine, but I'm really a big advocate of this collectivity. Because if we start to identify ourselves and hyper-identify ourselves, we start fighting for ourselves and it becomes a very narcissistic form of activism. And I don't think feminism is a fight for women. I think feminism is a fight for everyone. I think queer is a fight for everyone. And I think that if we start obsessing over our technologies of subjectivity, we're only going to be interested in our own fight for ourselves. And I don't think that really helps anyone. So I would say, yes, let's explode the world. Let's, you know, let's stuff up all of the um, groupings. She means that metaphorically, <laughs> of oh, course. Well, no, no. you I mean, say that, going to the apocalypse thing tomorrow. No, I mean
0: it really, yeah.
2: But what you said there also at the end about technologies of subjectivity, the idea of subjectivity, and particularly the idea of the individuated self, I heard an echo of what Finn was saying right there right at the end of her comments, in which she was talking about the need not to over-individualise and be looking inwards. Is that, yes. That's what we're getting at Absolutely. there.
5: Absolutely. I think that if you, if you refine yourself, you reify yourself, as living organisms, we are perpetually metamorphic. And I don't mean that in a postmodern kind of, oh, I can be anyone I want today, kind of shopping list consumer way. I mean that in a way that means if you designate someone, you are literally massacring their potentiality by imposing your power upon them. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? And there's no commitment to pay so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level
2: okay good words there to actually turn to some interactive discussion and i'm going to come back to you finn because i'm going to make a declaration here and i don't want to be ashamed but you are a sociology lecturer (laughs) you are a social scientist i am you're even wearing a badge to uh, to prove it it's the final shame that is finally being (laughs) you know embrace it so with that hat on, let me put something to you from another rather important social scientist. He was a bloke. Hey, he had a beard, but he's called Karl Marx, and we're going to talk about him in just a minute or two. One of the most famous things he said was, people make their history, but they don't make it exactly as they please. And I'm going to translate that as people, because he said mention, which is not the same as mena, meaning men. It's often translated as men, but it doesn't have to be. And in the case of the construction of the idea of gender, you know one of the single most powerful frameworks that we've had to understand social construction in the last you know, 30 or 40 years, if, if not even, even beyond that, part of the debate, and it is a debate that there has been, is about how totally you can regard this as a purely a social construct, and how much, if at all, it does touch on what Patricia said was what we might think of as biology. Now Let me throw that back to you there, if I may, in this form. Is there any sense in which the social construction of gender, which I suspect we all recognise on this panel and many in this room too, has any meaningful connection with biological progression, or are the two to be regarded as two bits of a Venn diagram that just never meet?
3: I mean, this question is going to run and run, isn't it? And within science, within neuroscience, there is stark disagreement. You have... Some scientists talking about the plasticity of the brain. But what many of them say is, can you spot masculinity in the brain or femininity in a brain? No, you cannot. And then, of course, you have evolutionary biologists, you know, biological determinists, who argue strongly and strongly believe the opposite. And what they usually mean by that is, of course, they don't mean someone knows the offside rule in the in the womb. They know that that's ridiculous, which it is. So they pull it away from that and they'll they'll talk about Quite woolly concepts like aggression or competition or physicality or the need for physical expression. And there are strong voices suggesting that these are real. In fact, there are people who will say a lot of the problems we see in the world today are because we have stopped boys from being boys. We have stopped their natural drive, men's natural drive towards competition and aggression, and that that's masculinity and that you can see that in the womb. Now, As a feminist, I don't believe the sorts of lies that we are told about women in the media, in advertising, in the beauty industry. I don't believe the lies that are told about what women are meant to be. So neither do I believe those sorts of lies that are told about men. And I think those myths about what men are and what masculinity is lies as a fundamental At the bottom of a lot of the problems that we see in the world today, I would say from the planet crisis to rape to school shootings, the problem is the construct of masculinity. Little boys who happen to be born male. I have a son myself. He's nearly three. Little babies are born naturally curious, gentle, loving, collective, social, I refuse to believe these myths that are told about men. And I'm a lesbian feminist man-hater, so that's something coming (laughs) from me. But often I find myself the strongest advocate for men in the room when people are saying, you're trying to suppress these things, men are naturally this, they're naturally that. No, masculinity is a set of stereotypes. Can you bring it down to anything else? No, it's a set of cultural stereotypes.
2: Patricia, could I take on this, this point in a slightly different context. You're an expert in particular on continental philosophy. Yeah. and I'm going to make a bold statement here. I'm happy to be torn down on it. But it seems to me that along with a lot of quite, frankly, masculine men in that field, the Lacan's, the Deleuze's, the, um, uh, uh, the, the, the um, uh, Lyotard and so forth, there are very significant female voices, Hélène Sixus, Julia Kristeva and others who have made a real voice for themselves in that tradition of french continental philosophy in a way that perhaps hasn't happened as much in the anglo-american tradition could we say that french continental philosophy is more egalitarian than the anglo-american tradition
5: well um we could because for example one of my favorite philosophers in the world is Luce rigore and i think she was, she's one of the most important women writing today but you might not know this but there's also an offshoot or the spawn of um, continental philosophy, both male and female, that occurred in Australia, I might be a giveaway. Um, How did you like, find out about that? <laughs> people like um, Elizabeth Gross, uh, Rosie Bradotti, um, there's a whole world, and these are women who picked up on both male and female continental philosophers and queered the hell out of them and actually created what is now a sort of industry of continental philosophy that owes its inception to feminism first, because they were interested in materiality and the presence of materiality in philosophy, whereas traditional, say, analytic philosophy is very logocentric and it's more interested in this whole Cartesian mind-body split. And as we all know, only men have minds and only women have bodies. And um, yes, yeah, so and only men can play chess. Yes, well, that's that's when they're using their minds. You know, they need women to move the.
2: Just just let's push that point a little further because this is a philosophy festival amongst other things. Would you say then that there is an argument that the style and the way in which continental philosophy thinks about ideas is different in its shape, in its form, and that it can be gendered. It can be thought of in gendered terms, as you seem I, to I've never,
5: I've never heard that, but I do wonder why there's that. There's, you know, two generations of uh, what's called corporeal feminists who love continental philosophy, mm-hmm. not necessarily the philosophers, certainly not the mansplainers who tell us all about what Deleuze really means when we go to conferences. You, an analytic and empirical philosophy is all about finitude. It's all about the fantasy of an absolute universalism, whereas continental philosophy knows that that is a fallacy that is invested more in power than in truth. And so continental philosophy is often misrepresented as not being interested in truth. It is absolutely interested in material reality and lived experience, but it is not interested in a universalizing truth that masquerades as neutral for the human but is essentially a mirror of this kind of vitruvian man which is this you know white hetero bro dude who speaks for everyone the critics of those people are actually very anxious about their loss of power at the destabilization of categories that their power relies on reiteration
2: so let's then take a practical case example which is very relevant to today's headlines and Angela Eagle, I'll turn to you, if I may. The Labour Party, the party for which you're a member of parliament, has run a system, many would argue successfully, of having all women shortlists for certain parliamentary seats. So that system is now coming under criticism from some quarters on the grounds that the definition, the binariness of men and women, is getting in the way of a proper consideration of different gendered persons getting into that particular sort of competition. What's your take on that?
4: Well, women only shortlists were created to put right the historic fact that women weren't able to break through into the parliamentary system and be selected as candidates. Uh, and it was affirmative action in order to put right a historic legacy of under representation. Just a more holistic, more complete version of democracy. And so. The women-only shortlists were created to put right a historic wrong. If you're asking me, is it wrong that a transgendered person should be allowed on a women-only shortlist, I'm totally in favour of that. Getting access in a first-past-the-post system to parliamentary selections is but an important issue that sure. the Labour Party has but been that's involved with in for a very long time. That's not quite
2: the question, question I, I, I'm asking. I'm asking, I think, more... Is something that has become more current in the last few years self-identification and self-choice as to gender sufficient to, say, enter into a competition for women-only well, shortlists? I, I
4: think that self-identification for trans people is a very particular issue which has exploded uh, into our consciousness and particularly in the newspapers mm-hmm. in uh, recent times. The Labour Party has always allowed uh, self-identified uh, male to female trans people to stand in women-only shortlists. The controversy which has erupted uh, in the last few months has been about the government's announced intention to allow self-identification, to change the way that trans people are allowed to proclaim the fact that they've changed by the issue of a gender recognition certificate. And the current Gender Recognition Act You have to say that you suffer from gender dysphoria, which is defined as a mental illness. You have to put your case before two doctors who decide whether you do suffer from gender dysphoria. You have to live in your new gender for uh, two years and you have to have other people judging whether you're allowed to change. All the government uh, is trying to do and they've left a terrible vacuum, which has caused big trouble here and people have uh, got very worried about it when they shouldn't have, is to have self-ID like they have in uh, Ireland and Chile, where you go before a magistrate. And instead of having to declare that you've got a mental illness, you say that you wish to now um, have your birth certificate and your birth gender changed. And that is all that is happening there. Um, It's 0.4% of the population who have uh, issues in and around the the gender they were born in Um, And I think that we ought to be uh, confident enough in our own identities not to be worried by that. And the Labour Party isn't.
2: So, Finn, would you share that position that essentially self-identification is sufficient to carry the vast majority of the work that needs to be done to place yourself in a gender category, particularly now that the spectrum of gender mm. is wider than it was perceived as well, being, say, 20 Well, again, years we're ago.
3: not talking about a gender category. You don't go to the gender recognition panel and go, today I feel sort of high camp, but yesterday I felt really butch, like a sort of Jim Bunny kind of butch. That's not how it works. We're talking about living and in all dealings and the rest of your life, you sign a de- legal declaration saying you will in all dealings and all personal life live as female or male and the state recognises that and there has to be a state process for that. Do I support the Tory suggestion for changes to that process of the Gender Recognition Act to make it simpler? Yes, I do support those changes. Partly because I am against pathologization, I am against the medicalization of people's identities, I am against the idea that, some psychiatrists sat on a panel judging you as to how you sit, what you look like, what you played with as a child can somehow define what you are. Um, so I support the demedicalisation and depathologisation of the process.
2: And would you support what happens in Ireland and Chile, which is the use of, say, the legal system, a magistrate's court as an appropriate Pathway. Yeah, well, I think the
3: suggestion here has been that it would be witnessed by a solicitor, perhaps, or it would be done similarly to how, say, a statutory declaration is done. But again, as Angela has already said, the sort of nitty gritty of the process. In fact, it's just kind of been kicked to the curb at the moment. They're not really progressing with what they meant by those changes. But yes, some sort of legal process would be in place. And yeah, I think it would, as I say, it would demedicalize it.
4: It would make it simpler. Very small percentages of transgendered people have a gender recognition yes, certificate anyway, exactly. because it's such a horrible process to have to go through and then they get into trouble when their birth gender is different from the gender they live in and that can cause them problems with invalidating travel insurance yep. a range of issues like that so this is just a practical issue which has is been blown out of all proportion by the fact that the government said they were going to change us and then didn't tell anyone how or why yep. or when and you have these ridiculous things going on now where people are saying oh it could be a man on Monday and a woman on Tuesday and and who knows what on Wednesday that is not And in your opinion
2: is that a sort of a try on you don't think that that's actually a defensible position in any meaningful way
4: um, what that you could change gender back and forward like because
2: that? If, I mean, you know, the, the 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 reductio ad absurdum would be that if you believe that gender is entirely constructed, then you can change your opinion about it over time. But we're
3: not talking we're about not, we're sex. We're talking when about transgender people here. Change. Yep. They they say I will live as a woman. My pension laws will change. My marriage certificate will change. Blah 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 blah. They are living. They will be living as either female or male. People can change. People change their gender daily. Everyone in this room is not a walking Barbie or Ken doll. Everyone is kind of is non-binary. Everyone's gender is fluid. You feel differently orientated one day to another. That's a completely different conversation to, as Angela says, a minority of people who will choose to go through a legal process to be
4: recognised as a sex that wasn't the sex labelled on their birth certificate. And this is a minority of people who have suffered terribly. Over 50% of transgendered people have thought about taking their lives. Many, many, many of them are bullied. A lot of them have been subject to an awful lot of abuse and hate, especially in the vacuum that the government have created by making this announcement and not following up and not following up on it fast enough. So uh, this is an, a, a separate issue of just being reasonable and decent to people who are having a really difficult time. I, as a feminist, don't feel threatened. I, as a woman, I don't feel threatened if there are some male to female transsexuals who are able to live the lives as they really feel that they want to live. That doesn't threaten my womanhood. Patricia?
5: I was just going to say that I think that a lot of the time the trans issue is raised by very anxious people to derail the deconstruction of gender in itself and so they have become scapegoats in many ways because... As we've said, it is a small percentage of people who do subscribe to a certain gender category. Most people do subscribe to a certain gender category. But those people who want to turn that issue into the main issue about gender fluidity Are the people that are made most anxious about the fact that every day they wake up and don't really know what it means to be a man or a woman. No no one knows themselves and certainly no one knows what it means to be a male or female. They just often know what it feels like to be treated as a male or a female and it's usually, if you're a female, pretty unpalatable. It's a bit of a shame because what it does is it shows that so-called heteronormative culture is so anxious about their own awareness that gender is absolutely redundant and ridiculous. And so they try and scapegoat a minority to show its absurdity anyway, because gender is absurd. It's a social control mechanism.
2: Gender is absurd. Now there's a great line, but we've had a fantastic discussion this afternoon. Could be thanked Patricia McCormack, Angela Eagle and Finn McKay.
1: We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So, what do you think? Is it possible to imagine a world beyond a gender non-binary? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times.